my daughter Amelia is sitting out here, and this week, she gradu- or she, about a week ago, she graduated from kindergarten, and so we're so proud of her. And part of the graduation for the kindergartners, they talked a little bit about uh, the children, and then they told what they want to be when they grow up. And Amelia said she wanted to be a veterinarian. Now, we don't quite know where that came from. Although we love animals, we don't have pets at our home. And I know that y'all are, judge people who don't have pets in their home, but it's, we have four kids and we just don't really want to feed any more mouths. And so uh, <laughs> that's kind of why we put it. Now, we did have pets. We had a fish and a frog, but they passed on. And um, Amelia was flipping through my phone the other day and she saw a picture of the fish and the frog. And she said, oh, I remember you. I will never forget you. And so maybe that's what her desire is to be a veterinarian, is to save kids from the pain of losing pet frogs and pet fish. So we'll see how that goes. But I love having conversation with my kids. I love to watch them grow up, to see how they change and they develop. I'm just fascinated with it. Now, don't get me wrong. I want them to slow down. I think it moves too fast, and so I tell them that. But I love to watch how their minds start to work and then how interactions kind of change and how uh, you, you see certain characteristics and you say, I wonder what that's going to look like in a few years uh, in them. And um, I try my best to not miss a moment and to be careful because I know childhood critically affects our adulthood, right? So I also try not to be uh, too anxious because I recognize that there's God's grace even though what happens in the home tends to show itself 20, 30, 40 years later. And so we're really careful about that. But with that in mind, um, I'm really curious about the homes that people grow up in. I wonder that about you. I wonder what it was like in the home where you grew up, what the interaction was like with friends and with your family. You know, we become real fascinated about this, even with criminals. We think, well, how did they become the bad actors they are? What happened in their homes? And we talk about the relationship maybe that was missing with a parent or maybe something that happened in the home. We do the same thing with celebrities. We think, what were they like before they were famous? You know, what was it like when they were a kid? Did they just interact? I mean, because we know they put on their pants the same way we do, one leg at a time. And so what was it like when they were just not famous and just living in the home? Well, I think that the same thing could be said about Jesus. People become fascinated with the idea, what was it like in Jesus' home? What were the parents like? How did they interact with him? How did he interact with friends and folks around him and we know he was sinless and we think how could a child be sinless we think how did this pan out how did this work out well the biblical accounts are kind of silent on this there are some extra biblical things that have been written that are far from true about Jesus and his childhood but there's a few things that we see in scripture about Jesus growing up Matthew and Luke tell us about the moment of conception and about uh, his nativity his birth Um, Luke tells us uh, about the moment when he was presented at the temple and the prophetess and the prophet that were there and just kind of that moment. Matthew tells us about these wise men visiting and they also tell us about the, he tells us about the flight to Egypt to escape Herod. And then Luke gives us one account, one account of Jesus as a boy. And that's the only one you'll find in the scripture, Luke 2, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And my interest in this passage of scripture is to see how focused Jesus was on his mission even from childhood was he aware of who he was was he aware of his relationship with the father and it should help us to see here as we look at this passage that we'll hear Jesus's voice for the first time as a man as a boy so he was self-aware even as a kid so look with me at Luke's gospel we're gonna be in the second chapter I'm gonna read to you verses 41 through 52 
Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke shows us here that Jesus was aware of his identity even as a child. And so what I want to propose to you this morning is Jesus demonstrates to us that as sons and daughters of God, we have a responsibility to find ourselves in service to our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus did, that's what we are to do. So we're going to look at this series of events from the Lord's childhood where Mary and Joseph are looking for Jesus. We'll begin in the first five verses here where they discover that Jesus is missing. So the annual trip for the Passover feast was one of the highlights of the Jewish year. It was something that they looked forward to. You think about your traditions around Christmas and Thanksgiving, and maybe that would kind of correlate with what would happen in the first century home as Jesus and his family kind of went on this annual journey to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Because this is one of the three annual feasts that were national feasts that where the men were commanded to go to Jerusalem, to show themselves in Jerusalem, the capital city, for the celebration. And according to Luke, Jesus' whole family would travel to Jerusalem every year. So it was not just his father. This just shows how devoted they are. Uh, it shows how pious Mary was, that she would actually go to Jerusalem, even though she was not a man, to show herself there for the high feast. Evidently, though, by the first century, we learned that uh, many of the families who lived outside of Jerusalem, that they lived a far, you know, far away from Jerusalem, only went, uh, participated in going to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. And so evidently, Jesus' family, this is what they chose. Every year at Passover, they were tradition, they would travel to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is 80 miles from Nazareth. So the trip would take three days. It was a three days journey. And they would travel by caravan. Of course, that gave them safety. Um, it also probably was a whole lot more fun. You know, travel with a group. So it's this camaraderie as you go. And um, I'm sure that they had traditions, you know, just like some of y'all will partake in this summer. Some of you go to the same place every year for your vacation. You eat at the same restaurants. You know, you go with the same people. You do the same thing on Tuesday that you did last year on Tuesday and for the last 30 years on that vacation. I bet they had similar traditions. You know, they knew where they would stay. They knew what they would eat. They knew who they would socialize with, who they'd get to see that they hadn't seen in a while. And so this is them traveling into Jerusalem. Verse 42 tells us that this time Jesus was 12. 
So he's 12 years old. He's a boy. And they were in Jerusalem. And after the seven days of celebration had come to a conclusion, they began the return to Nazareth. So the full caravan, they would leave from Jerusalem, head back to Nazareth, and they would all travel together except they didn't realize Jesus had stayed behind. Now we can be pretty judgmental towards parents, especially parents that lose their kids. But we all know this has happened. We've all done this, right? And so, and if, and if you're feeling pretty particularly judgmental, you better judge Mary and Joseph because they did the same thing here. They lost their son. It's like, how in the world did this happen? I mean, you're going three days journey and you just leave your 12-year-old son to wander off. What are y'all thinking? You know, it, I'm sure it crossed your mind at some point. <laughs> well, maybe it was the same things that you deal with. Mary thought, well, he's probably with his dad. And so they just kept on. And, you know, his dad's thinking, well, he's, he's probably with Mary. Or maybe they're together and they're thinking, well, he's probably with so-and-so, his friend. Or he's over with the cousins and he's traveling. Until that night. And they realized Jesus is not with anybody who we think he'd be with. So they looked for him the next morning. They're probably getting a little bit panicky as they see he's not there. And they head back to Jerusalem. Probably very frantic. Once we are aware that something is missing, we're responsible to act. That was for Mary and Joseph. That's for you too. Once we realize something's missing, we're responsible to act. A couple weeks ago, my boys ran in the uh, Run Hard 5K at Saluda Shoals. I ran with Andrew, who's smiling big right now. And uh, we did a great job. We ran hard. And at the finish line, Evan and I think Caleb were there, and they met us. And then uh, Andrew kind of was walking with them. I looked over at Rachel and saw Amelia, so I went over to them, thought they were with me. And then we headed back and realized they're not there, so they must have gone on to the tent. So we go to the tent. Caleb and Evan are there, but not Andrew. Well, there were 900 registered racers in this race, and there were probably almost 900 more buddies running in the race, and there were probably 1,000 or more there watching, maybe 2,000. So this is a huge crowd. You can imagine how panicky my wife got in this moment. Where is Andrew? And guess who was responsible for Andrew? Well... That meant I had to find him now, and it's like searching for a needle in a haystack with all these people. I tried to remain calm, but I realized this is going to be a real, <laughs> it's going to be hard. And I'm sure we'll find him, but it's like, how long am I going to have to put up with Rachel thinking I lost my son before I find him? So I wander around, and I see some of my friends, some here today, and I said, did you see Andrew? And they said, no. And I said, well, if you do, just grab him. Call me, not Rachel. Call me, and I'll <laughs> come get him. Well, finally, Rachel called to say he's back at the tent, and it turns out, you know, Andrew, what were you thinking? He said, well, I was with my friends, and we were looking for the good snacks, because that's what little boys do, right? Where's the good popcorn? Where's the good snow cones? Well, when you realize someone's missing, you're responsible to act, right? Well, Jesus was missing. I wonder if there's anybody here today who's maybe in this room, maybe join us by television on our webcast, and you realize, you know what? I'm missing Jesus. And maybe you've been thinking, well, I've been trying to act like I'm walking with Jesus, but you realize you're not. Maybe other people think that you're a Christian, but you recognize, you know, I just kind of pretend and play along with the traditions, and I do what is expected of people that say they're good folks. But you realize you're without Jesus. Or maybe you've been deliberately walking away from the Lord for a while now. And you know I am not with him, and he is not with me. Well, to receive Jesus in your life, does not require some dramatic moment. It's not some great act, act of sacrifice or kindness you have to perform. It's not something that you have to do where you work harder at something. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God has a gift for you today, and the gift is Jesus. 
You can't earn it. You can only receive it. And we receive him so that we can be saved. That's what the verse says. For by grace you've been saved. Saved from what? Saved from our sins. Well, we all sin because we all try to live for ourselves. We do our own way. We do our own thing. But we know the scriptures say that sin separates us from God. We're missing God from our life. But God who loves us so much made a way so that we could receive Jesus. And that is through Jesus' death on the cross. He shed his blood so that forgiveness could be extended to us. And so that we could be in relationship with God today. If, is Jesus missing in your life today? Well, we're responsible when we realize something's missing. So what are you waiting for? Perhaps you're sitting here today and you know you're a child of God, but you can think of people that you know that maybe Jesus is missing from their life. Maybe you don't know, but you're not sure. They have been walking with the Lord and you're not sure they've ever received Jesus into their life. Well, we should feel the same urgency in our hearts over that as we do when a child is missing. Even more panicky, any even more urgent is how we should respond. I was at Carowinds with my son Caleb on Friday with this class and we're walking between rides and I see this girl and I can tell she's lost her family. She's looking around. Y'all know that feeling. And you can see the panic and then I see her eyes start welling up with tears. Now it's not a great time for a, a man who's a stranger to walk up to a girl and say, are you missing? But sometimes you just do the right thing, right? So I walked up to her and I said, are you, have, have you lost your family? And she said, yeah, they were just here. I said, well, let's see if we can find somebody who can help. And so we went, and we were headed towards the first aid center, and all of a sudden she says, there's my mom. I said, well, run to her. And so she runs over there. <laughs> Whenever we realize something's missing or somebody is missing from the family of God, we act. Now, it's not that we do the saving, but we help them to find the hope that's in God through the relationship with Jesus. So are you aware of someone that you know is missing from the family of God? Well, what are you waiting for? It had to be panic when Mary and Joseph realized, our son's not here. What are we going to do? And I'm wondering, do you think they felt a little bit worse because this is God's son? You know, and it's like, oh man, we're supposed to be responsible. I don't know what it was like. I imagine there was a whole lot of pressure. You know, he's like, he went through all that work to get Jesus here and now he's gone. You know, what are we going to do? So Jesus goes missing, so they go looking for him. It sounds like they took the next day to travel back. Then they arrive in Jerusalem. They stay the night there. They search for him. And verse 46 says, on the third day, they found him in the temple. And did you notice what he was doing? Verse 46, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Well, according to Daryl Bach, in that day, it was not unusual for students to gather at the feet of the rabbis to discuss theology, often in a question and answer discussion format so Jesus like some of these other young men is just engaging in the religious discourse of the day he's asking questions he's answering some of them he's offering insight and the interesting thing is just how much insight this boy had verse 47 says and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers Robert Stein writes there is no doubt Luke wanted his readers to see in this incident the unique wisdom of God's Son. So while those listening to Jesus that day could probably not put their finger on it, they're going, who is he? Now, how do you know that? You know, now, wh who's your dad again? And where are you from? You know, I imagine that's probably what they're thinking, right? Because they're saying, this is amazing what he has to offer. What's going on? You know, Luke tells about another time when people are talking to the Messiah and they don't even realize it. But these were people who had been followers of Jesus. 
after Jesus' death and resurrection, these guys are walking the Emmaus Road. They think Jesus is still in the grave. Well, some guy shows up and starts asking, what are you doing? And they're talking about what's been happening, all the excitement around what happened with Jesus. They never recognized him. So Jesus began to teach him. He sat down and dined with them before they realized who he was. And then after he was gone, they say in verse 32 of Luke 24, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? I wonder if these men in the temple, their hearts were just on fire like, who is this? And what is he talking about? Well, this is where Mary and Jesus, uh, Joseph find Jesus. And any parent reading this account can totally relate to this moment. Jesus' parents are overwhelmed by what has taken place. They probably reach out for him, you know, and we have this frustrated mother who says to our preteen son, how could you have behaved this way? You know, you left us. You know, she says, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Andrew, why did you walk off from us? What were you thinking? Do you not know how we felt? I was looking for snacks, Dad. Well, verse 49, we see Jesus speak for the first time as a human. And this is truly the climax of this part of Luke's gospel. Angels have talked about Jesus. Prophets have spoken about him. Mary's kind of written a song of praise when she realized what's happened to her. We know the, uh, the prophet who met him at the temple uh, speaks about him. But verse 49, Jesus talks about himself. Verse 49, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? This is literally translated, I must be in the dot, dot, dot of my father. It's an elliptical statement, so it's a little bit confusing. What does he mean? I must be in the, of my father. And so traditionally, the translation that you have in your King James Version is, I must be about my father's affairs. I must be about my father's business. That's how you've heard it probably most of your life. But Mary's question was not quite, what have you been, you know, what have you been doing? She says, where have you been? And it's, you know, Jesus answering, well, where a child should be. I was in my father's house. It's kind of how it goes. And that's why the preferred meaning is probably as I just read in the New American Standard, or maybe your Bible says, I had to be or I must be in my father's house. So it was not only that he was there in the house, but he was also engaged in what happens there, which was not just worship, but it was teaching. Jesus was called to teach the nation. So he says, well, I had to be in my father's house. I had to be teaching. That's what I'm called to do. But the bottom line is this. Jesus knew even in his childhood that he had a mission. And he was committed to that mission. And his mission is to do his father's will. Sons and daughters of God ought to feel an urgency about their heavenly father's business. That includes us. Sons and daughters of God ought to feel an urgency about being about their Heavenly Father's business. I've been reading through a book called Remission by Gary Comer. I've got a lot to process on it. But there's this interesting statement very, very close to the end of the book. He writes this. He says, what if the Son of God incarnated in the same exact moment of time with the same name, with all the same scenes and settings to work with, yet was missing one simple ingredient? A source of urgency for the Father's mission. So Jesus shows up. He has the same name. He's in the same place. All these, you know, fascinating stories. He taught in the same way. But he didn't feel the urgency about his Father's mission. Perhaps you could say that's how some of us are in our relationship with the Lord. 
Now, he says, Comer says, he probably continued teaching. It's just he might have stayed in the temple a whole lot more. He might not have felt the need to go out into the highways and the byways and the hedges. He might not have spent time one-on-one with Zacchaeus or with the woman at the well. He wouldn't have strategically felt this urgency to send out the disciples by twos to go and carry the gospel, to preach the good news that the kingdom of God has come. Perhaps he would have developed a larger following in words, but would he have been as effective? Now, of course, it's just a question. It's nothing with a real, it's not true. But as sons and daughters of God, we should feel the same urgency to tend to our father's affairs. So what is that? What affairs should we be tending to as children of God? You know, we make following Christ pretty complicated, but it's really rather simple. When Jesus was asked what's most important, do you know how he answered? He says in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. He says that what is most important is love. In fact, he tells his followers when he leaves, they're going to know you because of the love you have for one another. Jesus commanded his followers, you love, you love God, and you love people. His followers said the same thing. John says in 1 John, beloved, let us love one another. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. If you want to sum it up, we've been called to love. And if the church fails when it comes to loving, we are missing it. We must be about our Father's business, and the business of God's kingdom is to love. Jesus further clarifies to his disciples of what he's called them to. In Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord's business for his followers and his mission for the local church, that includes First Baptist Church of Columbia, is summed up in two ideas, to love and to make disciples. What do we exist for? We are a family of faith who loves God, loves people, and makes disciples. And you think, what am I supposed to be doing as a member of this church? Love God, love people, make disciples. Our mission teams that are heading out all over the world, that's their task, to carry high the banner of Christ, to demonstrate and generously give out the love of God that's found in Christ, and to make disciples wherever they are. And you know what the ultimate goal is? Every tongue and tribe. That's what this church is to be about. So how are you, are you participating in that mission, or how are you? Love God, love people, make disciples, get on board. When Mary and Joseph realized they were missing Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem. They found him in the temple. They're confused by his statement. And then in the last two verses of Luke 2, we discover the conclusion to Jesus' childhood. It's all we know about it. Jesus returns to Nazareth, and what is inevitable inevitable becomes a waiting game. Jesus knew he had a mission, but it was not time for deployment. He was obedient to his parents. He went down to Nazareth lived in subjection to them. And Mary, like every other mother, is taking notes on what he's doing. She's thinking about it. She's treasuring it in her heart is what the scripture says here. She's pausing and reflecting on what she knew, of what she was seeing, and what she believed was to come. 
And Jesus is maturing as a young man. He's described as increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And it's hard to be bothered by the fact that Jesus is growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. But this verse illustrates that following Jesus requires waiting. It requires waiting. We live in a society that does not like waiting. And I know you think kids are so impatient today. So are you. Every time you pull up to that yellow light and the car in front of you does not go through, I know what you think. Or when you're on that interstate in that left-hand lane and the left car in front of you is driving slower than the ones on the right, you can't stand it. You go to the checkout line, you insert your credit card in that chip reader. You think, why is this so slow? I don't get it. You know, you watch that video and it just, it's buffering. And you're thinking, why is it so slow? Some of you can't wait for school to end. Some of you can't wait for summer to get here, but most of us are thinking, when will winter be back? Because... It's just turned into hot again. The Christian life requires waiting. In fact, I think it's important for us to pause during our days and consider, what is God teaching me? I think it's really easy for us in our rushed environment to skip on to the next thing and just think, okay, that was good, what's next? Mary treasured all these things in her heart. So I want to challenge you. And you can start today. Take 15 minutes today. Maybe you can reflect on this message. And you can think, who is Jesus and what is his mission for me? Jesus, what are you wanting from me in my life? You know, it's a mistake to come to worship or a Bible study or hear a message and to never really consider what God is teaching you. So take time today and do that. Something that's interesting to me is that in his waiting, Jesus grew. We must learn to grow up when we wait rather than shrink back. There's some reason that waiting causes us to lose interest and to shrink in our zeal. But Jesus, that's not the case. God has a mission for our life. Every moment is critical. Sometimes we deploy, sometimes are meant for preparation. It's for waiting. You may feel like you are in a waiting pattern right now. Well, make sure to grow in this season. That doesn't happen by accident. When we live on cruise control, we shrink back in our zeal for the Lord. We shrink back in our desire to serve God and his mission, to love others. So you have to be intentional about how to grow in your affections for God and your love for one another and in your mission to go and make disciples. I'm sure many of you are just like me and you're watching the news and you're thinking, when will Jesus come back? Does he not see how this world is spinning out of control? What is he waiting for? Last night I saw this beautiful sunset. I don't know if y'all saw it. It was just incredible. And I thought, I hear a sound. I was just ready for the sound. Go ahead and crack the sky, Jesus. Let the trumpet sound. This would be a beautiful time for you to come on back. But guess what? He didn't. He has not come back. So our mission is not over with. We must grow as we wait. We cannot shrink back. This passage of Scripture marks the last glimpse we have of Jesus before he begins his ministry. This whole story seems so real. I mean, can't you just see parents losing a 12-year-old son on this journey? Well, we live in the age of helicopter parents, snowplow parents, so we avoid that somehow. But free-range parenting, they, their 12-year-old wanders off there every once in a while, right? But they found him. Well, are you missing Jesus today? If you are without Christ in your life, I want to remind you, as I've already said, once you are aware that something is missing, you are responsible to act. Will you act today? If you're missing in action when it comes to your father's business, let me remind you, sons and daughters of God ought to feel an urgency 
to be about their father's business? Will you enlist in the father's service today? If today you feel like you're missing Jesus because he's taking his time and you're having to wait on him, let me remind you that following Jesus requires waiting, waiting patiently. So remember in your waiting, grow, don't shrink back. As sons and daughters of God, we have a responsibility to find ourselves in our Heavenly Father's business. And I believe this morning that Jesus is calling home sinners. And he's calling sons and daughters into service. Will you respond? Our Father and God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to consider your word. What a beautiful thing that we see in the life of Jesus and the example he provides for us. God, I pray for each person in this room, each person joining us by television, that today they would say, God, how can I act? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have a time of invitation. If God's speaking to your heart, I'll be down front. Maybe it's to respond to the gospel, to recommit, to join the church, whatever it might be. As God works in your heart, you respond. I'm going to invite you to stand. As you stand, our choir will sing and you respond.